Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, we are between series, and so we're going to take a moment for the next two weeks to walk you through something that's really, really important, uh, knowing what to believe. Now, if you were with us about a year and a half ago, you might say, Phil, this is familiar. We've done that before. We're going to do a shorter version of it this time, and I just want to underscore for you why it's so important that we think about that. In a recent survey that George Varna did, 58% of all Americans said that they did not believe that they thought that moral truth was up to every individual to decide. Just think about that for a second. That means that outside of the church, six out of ten people think that what's right for them is what's right for them, and what's right for you is what's right for you, but you're, you're not allowed to say, no, there is truth that is outside of us that should dictate to us how we live and how we believe. In fact, um, most, in the most striking sense, Uh, Not only it's 58% outside of the church, but within the church, that number is 48%. 48% of people within most churches believe that it isn't up to God to decide what moral truth is, but it's up to you to decide what moral truth is. So for a moment, understand the importance of us pausing and saying, these are things we believe is vitally important. Now, in the pew in front of you, I want you to pull this out right here. It says uh, what we believe in practice. So this is where we're going to spend the next two weeks, all right? We're going to spend the next two weeks there, and if you open that up, you'll be able to follow along, and I'm going to move kind of rapidly through uh, this particular section. But as we do that, I just want you to remember, um, these are the seven things that we as a church say we believe. And we believe these things because the Scripture unpacks them for us. And so we're going to talk about those today. We're going to take them in a kind of a high-speed fashion. If you want to know more, go back about a year and a half ago, pull up this series, Knowing What to Believe, and we took a little bit more time with each of them. But it's important for us just to pause and go back over the fundamentals again. Now, you might be saying, Phil, I already know all of those. I've learned those since I was a child. Uh, today's going to be a little different in that e- after each one of these seven statements, I'm going to give you an implication. That is, an implication that kind of synergizes what we believe and how it affects or how it has an impact in how we should live today. So it's going to be a little different that way. So even if you've learned all these things before, it's great to review them. It's great to go over the fundamentals, but it's also great to recognize some of the implications. Let's take this first one. Here it is. We believe there is but one God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe there is but one God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you take a notes, just kind of jot down these references along with these ideas, okay? So, here's the first one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's why we say we believe there is only one God. You say, well, doesn't everybody believe that? The Egyptians didn't believe that. The Egyptians had 2,000 gods to worship when this particular scripture was written. The Greeks didn't believe that. The Greeks had 12 gods, main gods, and then a bunch of little mini-gods, then goddesses. And the Romans didn't believe that when the New Testament came into being. The Romans believed that there were 12, uh, somewhere between 10 and 14 gods, depending on who you were following. The point is this, that almost all cultures are polytheistic. They believe that there's more than one god. The Christian doesn't believe that. The Christian believes this verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
which is really important because when Jesus says in John 14, um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, he's speaking of only one way. So it's important that we believe these truths from the Scriptures. Now, it, gets a, it can get a little confusing because of this verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There are three different persons in that verse and as well as in this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, I'm writing to you, God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a third. And so, we would define this one God as what we call a triunity. God is one in essence, eternal, exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, some of you might be saying at this stage, okay, I don't know what the implications are of that, okay? So just hold on for a second, all right? There's a tremendous implication coming right out of our statement, and here it is. We believe there is one God, just say it with me what's highlighted, who reveals himself, okay? We don't get a chance to make up this God, okay? The only way we know him is because he revealed himself to us through the scriptures. Romans actually says that those who are without God can actually see God in creation. They can look around at creation and say, wow, there must be a God because this stuff just couldn't come into being, right? But, but here's the point. God has to reveal himself through creation, through the Word, through the Holy Spirit, through his Son Jesus, so that we could understand who he is. And the moment you detach that, the moment you and I can begin to make God anything we want him to be. Mark Twain once quipped, listen, in the beginning, God created man in his image. In our century, Twain said, man has returned the favor and created God in his image, okay? The point is this, we dare not do that. Here's the implication. We don't make God up, okay? We don't make God up. We discover him through his word because that's where he's revealed himself. This is so important because as I watch people my age and younger detach from their faith, they look at the culture around them, they look at the society around them, and they say, I, I don't know, I, I don't see God working. They are defining how God should work. They're not discovering God from the Word and how He does work. And that distinction is critical. If your faith is in a made-up God, hmm, it's not going to sustain the hard times of life. But if your faith is in the God who revealed himself in the scriptures, then your faith will sustain through the difficult times. Here's the second idea. If you're following along in that little brochure, we believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal and only Son of God who is both fully God and fully man. We believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal and only Son of God who is both fully God and fully man. If you want to write a verse down there, you can write down John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, right? So we believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal and only Son of God, who is both fully God and fully man. Um, take a look at how he, Jesus, perceived himself in the Scriptures. In John chapter 10, we read, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. And then Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Now, just know this, 
This is typical of how Jesus responded about who he was with the Father. I and the Father am one. He has no problem saying that he is God. And it's one of the reasons the religious leaders that didn't like him without him saying this made a case that they could destroy him because they said, listen, you've made yourself to be God. Nobody can make themselves to be God. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. He never corrects them when they say this, by the way, throughout the Gospels. It's really remarkable. They say, he's claiming to be God. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's not what I meant. Okay. Jesus doesn't answer that. Instead, he says, yes, that is who I'm claiming to be. Remember, that's what actually brought about his crucifixion um, or his judgment by the religious leaders. The religious leaders said they, they brought up all kinds of false accusations and they didn't have anything against him. And then in that trial at midnight, all of a sudden Jesus says, yes, I am the Son of God and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And he quotes from Daniel, which is clearly in that passage an expression of who God was. And the religious leader uh, Caiaphas right there tore his robe and said he's claiming to be God. Okay. Jesus didn't say, no, that's not what I meant. Jesus was fully and is fully God. But notice something else. We believe that he's fully human as well. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. That's the passage you want to write down there. Jesus emptied himself, being taken the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, being found in human form. Here's the point. Jesus is fully God and fully man. You say, what's the implication? Well, here it goes. The implication is when we study the deity of Christ, we are drawn to worship him. When we sing about Christ, when we sing about the cross, when we sing about that, we're drawn to worship him. Now, I feel really uncomfortable, like if, if, if all of a sudden someone said, hey, let's have a worship Pastor Phil day, okay? I'm not God. You're not supposed to worship people who are not God, right? But note this, when we study the humanity of Christ, we're inspired to live like Him. So even though we are not him, when I watch him operate in his humanity, that is, depend upon the scriptures to handle temptation, when I see him praying morning, noon, and night, when I see him using the resources I'm supposed to use, guess what? I can say, wow, that's how I'm supposed to live like Jesus. When I see him serving others, when I see him with his lack of condemnation of someone who is repenting, but rather seeking to help them and restore them, when I see his self-sacrifice, when I see all of that, I'm inspired to live like him. I don't sit back and say, well, he's God, I can't do that. I worship him as God, and I'm inspired to live like him as well. That's because Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. Here's your third one. We believe that man was created in the image of God and that he sins, separating himself from God and is destined for eternal separation from God. Now, just let me camp on this one for a little bit, all right? because this has tremendous implications into the world in which we live. We believe that man was created, just say it with me, in the image of God. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you that in the Scriptures in a moment, but let me just quote Bob Kellerman for a moment. The world has over 250 models of human personality. Okay, just get this. You can be whatever you want to be, frankly. You've got 250 options. Okay. Human reason has attempted to understand the creature through the creature. This is so important. Watch this. We attempt to understand ourselves by looking at other people around us and trying to understand them. Okay. 
But the Bible, by contrast, he says, provides us with the inspired understanding of our nature, that is who we are. Through God's revelation, we come to understand the creature through the creator. This is so important. This is in the, the opening pages of scriptures. This is what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There it is. You and I have something in us of the image of God. Now granted, in the fall that's shattered, I get it. But you must understand that you can't move away from the fact that we just didn't happen. We were created in the image of God. You say, well, what does that mean? Let me give you four words, okay? Four words, the image of God in us means. The four words are connect, think, choose, feel. Just say those with me. Connect, think, choose, feel. Say them with me one more time. Connect, think, choose, feel. This is what the image of God looks like, okay? We are to connect. We are relational beings. We're to have relationships, communication, conversations, care for one another. See that in a second. Think we are rational beings. That is, we are to use our mind. We're not just to let our minds wander. We're not just to, we're actually supposed to think through it. Choose, we are volitional beings. That is, we have choices that we make, and that communicates a portion of how we are, frankly, made in the image of God and feel we are emotional beings. Now, all of us operate on all four of these elements, but we operate that way not because we, were, not because we just happened and we're, we're in the mammals um, group. We, ha- we are created that way because we were created that way because we were made in the image of God. Let me show you that. Here's the first one, relational being. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. Stop for a second. Those are plural pronouns. Who is God talking to? Just ask the question. Because in verse 27, he's created man. So he's not talking to man and women because they're not created yet. You say, well, maybe he's talking to angels. Hold on. We're not created in the image of angels. God is talking to himself. That is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've already explained that. One in essence, three in persons. The Father, Son, and Spirit are talking among themselves. Let us together, make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. And that means that from the very beginning, you and I are to relate to one another. Now, pause. I'm going to meddle here a little bit, okay? You say, Phil, Phil, I'm shy, okay? I need downtime, like a lot of downtime to interact with people, okay? That's fine. But you can't always just say, I just need my downtime, because part of the image of God in you is that you are to relate to other people. You say, yeah, yeah, that's me, that's me. I love to relate to people. I just, I, I just love to be with people. I want to be with people all the time. Every time I'm with people, I just keep talking, 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 talking. Hold on, that's not relating either. Okay. You can't just say, this is my personality. You need to ask yourself this question. How am I relating the image of God to another person? If I talk too much, I need to be a better listener. If I, all I do is listening, I need to be a better talker. Whatever it is, I have to learn to relate to other people because I'm made in the image of God. Let me show you all these other ones real quickly here. We think, we feel, we choose, and we relate. Notice that when sin takes place in Genesis chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You immediately see that she is 
feeling, choosing, and thinking about things. She saw it. Hmm. She thought about it. It was a delight to the eyes. It looked good. She desired it. She felt something about it emotionally. She took it. She chose it. She gave. She related to her husband through it. All of those elements are part of the image of God. Now, they fall apart here because sin's getting injected into them. But I just want you to see momentarily how vital those are. Now, if you've ever asked yourself the question, like something like, um, hey, it would have been a lot better <clears throat> if God would have just created this world and he wouldn't have put that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden, because when he put that tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden, he gave them the opportunity to choose, and they chose poorly, and guess what? We have pain and suffering, and the world's at war because of it, okay? You might say, if I was God, I would have done that differently. Hold on. We are made in the image of God. God thinks, feels, chooses, and relates. That is part of who we are in our being. Let me see if I can show you real quickly. Sometimes when I get discouraged, a little disappointed, like uh, things are hard, and I wonder if, if anybody uh, really cares about me, or I, I sometimes might just wonder if I'm, you know, special. Okay. I'm glad I have my iPhone, because, you know, an iPhone's got an app for everything, right? So all I got to do is turn it on, it goes like this. Just listen. I love you, Phil Moser. I think you're special. Okay. See how good that is? Okay. Let me just play it. Let me just play it one more time for you, just because you might not have heard it, and because I want to feel special, right? Okay, just let me play it one more time. Here it is. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Here it is. Just listen real carefully. I love you, Phil Moser. I think you're special. Now, why doesn't that make me feel special? You know why? Because there's no choice in it. There's no choice in it. It's just me pushing a button. That is not how God created us. And he didn't create us that way because we're made, just say it with me, in his image. That's exactly right. We're made in his image, which, by the way, is a tremendous relational element for all husbands here today. Okay? Your wife wants to know that you're choosing something that you're choosing her over something else because that's how she sees value, right? right? Because we are, we are people who can make choices. Now, notice something else in the text real quickly. Notice that uh, in, our, in our belief statement that when man sinned, he separated himself from God and was destined for eternal separation from God. That's so important. This is the story of the Bible. We don't make ourselves right with God. We are separated from God. And not only are we separated from God, but that's an eternal separation. The Bible clearly teaches that, that we are eternally separated from God unless something happens outside of us. I'll get there in a second. Let me go back and give you implication three, okay? We believe this is the implication. And it has to do with being made in the image of God. Because we were created in the image of God, all human life is sacred and should be treated as such. That means the unborn, the newly born, the young, and the old should be treated as if they were made in the image of God. So important. Notice that I just didn't say the unborn. That has been under attack in, in our era, in, our, in, in, in America, for a long time, that the unborn has been under attack. But I want you to see something really, really important. That 
when we say life happens at conception, what I want you to see is that the image of God happens at creation. God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God created he them, male and female. There's your picture. At the point of creation, the image of God is passed on. So it's not just about life taking place at conception. It's about the image of God being placed into that little life at conception. But I just want to add this thought to you. We, We sometimes have erred in arguing for the sake of the unborn We don't give a lot of care for the newly born, the young, and the old. The same passion should apply to both. Why? Because because it's the image of God in the unborn, it's the image of God in the newly born, it's the image of God in the young, and it's the image of God in the old. Which is why when God just laid on my heart to to do the book for Ukrainian children, it, it was so evident to me that there were children who were made in the image of God. That's why James says, uh, pure religion and undefiled is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their need and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The point is, is that we should be caring for all of humanity like that. By the way, the point is, um, that's how you should be caring for the people who cut you off in traffic. Okay. You say, they're, they're not made in the image of God. Maybe I can help them see God, okay? Like, okay, the, the point is this, that get, a, get control of your road rage, all right? These are individuals made in the image of God. By the way, this should change the way that you and I treat one another, the way we talk to one another. I mean, if you're prone to say, you frustrated me, and so I'm just going to tell you how I feel, I'm just going to let it out, okay? I just want to remind you, just pause and say, before I say this, I need to think, this person's made in the image of God. Is this the way I would talk to God? You say, well, yeah, but that's because they think they're God. That's why I talk to them that way. Okay, I got to correct them, all right? I'm just telling you, no, you need to understand that being made in the image of God makes human life sacred. It's different, therefore, than all other animal life because we can think, we can feel, we can choose, and because we are to relate to one another. Here's the fourth idea. We believe that salvation is by God's grace, not by man's works. The salvation was accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave and is available to all who believe, okay? We believe that salvation is by God's grace and not by man's works. This is so, so important because all of a sudden when everybody begins to think that they're trying to work their way to God and they don't have an absolute truth mechanism or measure to evaluate what they're actually seeing is what should please God, then you can just see. That, that scenario is going to be a mess. Salvation is by God's grace, not by man's work. Simple verse, Ephesians chapter 2. For a grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. By the way, look at Ephesians 2.10, how it follows that. We are as workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a a wonderful reminder of how most human beings in their pride, including us, think about how we're going to satisfy God. We put verse 10 in front of verse 8 and 9, okay? We say, hey, good works. That's how I'm going to get to God. I do good works, right? But verse 10 isn't in front of verse 8 and 9. It follows verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved. And when you're saved through faith... And that's not your doing. That's God providing the gift. Um, and it's not a result of works. Then, after you're saved, those good works actually do mean something. The things that you are doing for God's kingdom matter. Right? 
but they don't precede your salvation. They follow your salvation. Implication. We cannot save ourselves, period. We cannot save ourselves. Only Christ can save us. By the way, that changes. It has great implications. It changes how you look at life. Like, it's going to change how you think about yourself. In that um, prayerful preparation song that Justin had chosen, I don't know if you caught the word, um, the idea of obedience will help us walk in humility. The person who recognizes they cannot save themselves, that individual has to come with humility. He can't pat himself on the back. He can't say, I, I, well, I did some of it. Well, I, I tried my best. Okay. No, he just comes in humility and says, I cannot save myself. But by the grace of God, I was saved. By the free gift of God, I was saved. And the statement goes on to say, by the way, that only Christ can do that, right? And we ground that in the Scriptures, too. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, say it with me, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul just says, listen, it is Christ who died in His perfection for our sins, and therefore His perfect sacrifice, because he'd never sinned, his death can pay the penalty for your sin. That's the picture. You say, wow, I'd love to have that. That's why God put Romans 10, 12, and 13 in the Bible. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Here's the point. You don't have to say, listen, well, I grew up in a religious home, or I didn't grow up in a religious home. It's not all, it doesn't matter. What matters is verse 13. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You can call. Amen. In fact, in, um, in the little book that I had done for the Ukrainian children, I had the, I, I'm tr- I was trying to find a way to, to bring about the discussion of salvation into a children's adventure story. And I remember when I realized that I, that I, that I had discovered the idea. I had the little boy in the sea, unable to save himself. He, he swam to the shore. He had a life preserver. He pushed his sister along. When he finally gets there, he should be so encouraged because he's at the shore and there's a storm. But the problem is there's cliffs on the side and he can't do it. No matter how hard he tries, he crawls up on the rocks and the waves push him back. He cries, crawls up again. And when the keeper of the lighthouse asked him the question, could you save yourself? He said, no. No matter how hard I was swimming, no matter how hard I was trying, I couldn't save myself. You had to reach down and pull me out of the water to save me. And Constantine says, exactly. That's how it is. For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. You and I must come with humility and say, I cannot save myself. This is such an important distinction. God doesn't look at us and say, oh, but you're a better person than the others, so I'll save you instead. That's not how God works. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. Number five, here we go. We believe in the absolute authority and accuracy of the Bible as God's Word to us and its relevancy to our lives today, and that every Christian is called to live according to its instruction. Now, let me talk about that briefly. There's three words there that are really important. Authority is one of those. We don't take our authority from any place else other than the Scriptures. 
Uh, Fellowship Bible Church is a church that doesn't have a denomination associated with it. We don't have a headquarters building someplace. So the only authority we really have is the Scripture. We believe that that Scripture is accurate. Uh, the, the Bible is good. It was accurate in what he, God gave to us. And here's the third one. It's really important because we chose this word carefully. We believe that it's relevant. When someone says, oh, it's an old book, right? If it's authoritative and it's accurate, then if it's relevant, then every Christian is called to live according to its instruction. In fact, just let me show you that real quickly. Here it is in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that this is the process to maturing. It's right here, okay? It's here. Um, one of the things I love about Fellowship Bible Church, because I've been here long enough now, that, that some people have said, well, you know, t- t- tell me, you know, when you use the Bible, I said, there's accountability in the church for me having to use the Bible, frankly. I said, here's what would happen. If I stepped up there and just gave a TED Talk next week without my Bible, okay, I'd go home and Kim would be the first to say something to me. If I did it for the second week, okay, the elders would have said, Phil was just off his game last week, okay, but by the second week, the elders would talk to me, okay, and I'm pretty convinced that by the third week, everybody would say, at Fellowship Bible Church would say, Phil, where's your Bible, okay, did you lose it, what happened, okay, because there's accountability when you stay in the Bible, but there's an implication that you may not have thought about yet, here it is, we follow God with our Bibles open and encourage you to do the same. It's not just that we do that on a Sunday, right? It's not just that we have the Bible open on a Sunday. We follow God with our Bibles open. We encourage you to do the same. That is why in January we introduced you to Kairos Journal. Why? Because we said it's not enough for you to just say, I'm going to church, I'm listening to some podcasts, but you've got to get into the Bible for yourself. That is why, come shortly here in the summer, we'll also present to you uh, another set of devotional readings so that you can have a pattern in case you kind of get off target so that you can stay in the Bible for yourself. Because this is the implication. If you believe that the Bible is authoritative, if you believe that it's accurate, if you believe that it's relevant, then why are you not reading it? That's the point, right? That's the point. And, And that's also preached right back at me. Sometimes, particularly when my week gets interrupted and something else gets off track, all of a sudden I'll look at that Kairos journal and I'll say, well, I missed two days or I missed, I missed a couple days. What, what happened? Right? You and I have to see and affirm that if the Bible is authoritative, if it's accurate, and if it's relevant, then we ought to be reading it. We follow God with our Bibles open. We encourage you to do the same. Number six, we believe that the church is a group of believers in Jesus Christ who serve together for worship, ministry, and fellowship. Fellowship Bible Church is the local representation of the global church. We simply mean by that we're not the only church, okay? And I get that. People come, people go. We're not the only church. We're not even the only church in town, okay? Maybe if we were in another part of the world, we'd be the only church, but we know we're not. The point is this. We want to be a local representation here on this corner of the church to the world, And I noticed something else in this statement, that we believe the church is a group of believers in Jesus Christ, which if I show you two pictures, most people would look at this picture, and what's in the circle is what they would see as the church. But the Greek word here is the word ekklesia, which is a gathering of people, which means that's not the church. This is the church. You understand that distinction? The church is made up of the people, not of the building, not of the building. 
The building is a campus. The building is a house. The building is where we might gather. The building is where we might do ministry. But the building is not the church. In the New Testament, the church was the people. And notice this about these people. We serve together for worship, ministry, and fellowship. Three things we're supposed to do together, okay? Worship. Here they are, quickly. Through worship, we inspire to point each other towards the Lord. Our worship should be about inspiring one another to point each other towards the Lord. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, by the way, context, 1 Corinthians is written to a church that was so consumed with itself it was biting and devouring itself, okay? Maybe you've come from a church like that. At times, parts of Fellowship Bible Church have been like that. We're human beings. Uh, Someone has said Christians are like porcupines trying to huddle together on a cold winter night. First they huddle together for warmth, and then they prick each other and move apart again, okay? So that's the image, okay? But here's the idea. When you come together, each one of you has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation that all things be done for building up. It's about worship inspiring us towards the Lord, not about us, not about us. Churches divide all the time because people like things done their way. Here's the other idea. Through ministry, we work to mature each other in the Lord. Through ministry, we work to mature each other in the Lord. By the way, the word ministry in the Bible is the word that speaks of serving. It it means that you're interested in the other person. You're helping them. You're you're not making it about you, okay? Serving together through ministry, that is, in somebody else's life, we work to mature each other in the Lord. Now, note this in Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. One of the coolest things, and at times one of the frustrating things, is that Fellowship Bible Church is largely run by volunteers, okay? It's a big volunteer organization. And that's a cool thing, because that's what's going on here, right? That all the saints should be involved in the work of the ministry. It's a frustrating thing, because sometimes when you have volunteers, sometimes the volunteer forgets to show up, okay? And, uh, but, but here's the picture. The saints, that is the believers, are doing the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And I love the way that passage goes on to continue to unpack it. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, this isn't just people helping. This is people actually instructing while they're helping. It's like you working alongside someone in the nursery or with the children's program and all of a sudden looking at the person next to you and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? What's the Lord doing in your life? How can I encourage you? Do I have a verse to share? Is there something? Because I'm supposed to be, and you are supposed to be, building one another up in the unity of faith to the knowledge of the Son of God. Watch what happens. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ's maturity, right? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. It was just with our granddaughters last night, and it was cool because cool, Grandpa got a chance to treat them to ice cream, okay? So that's like, a, that's like a total blast, okay? And here is this ice cream cone, and I'm just following her around. She can't decide what she wants to do, okay? But since it's a parking lot, I'm going to watch her, okay? She walks over here. I walk over there. She walks over here. She looks around. Oh, she likes so it's over there. That is often how Christians live their lives. That's how children live their lives, Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's not how we're supposed to live our lives. We're supposed to grow up in the maturity to Christ. Final element, here it is. Through fellowship. Through fellowship, we partner to encourage each other for the Lord. 
Fellowship is, is a word that's actually translated and rendered in the Bible in places with the word partnership or, or fellowship. Um, it, koinonia is the Greek word. It, it carries this idea that we just don't get together, but we get together purposefully. Now, in a few minutes, um, we do this um, usually once a month or so. We're, we, we end the service, but the service isn't over, right? We have coffee and stuff for you here, right here in the sanctuary. You don't even have to leave, right? We encourage you to get together, but it's not about the coffee, It's about you getting together and talking with one another and saying, hey, what's going on? What are you doing with your summer? How can I pray for you? Those are great conversations because that's what fellowship looks like. In fact, I find that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I'm going to tell you right now, um, churches of the past probably didn't have the right focus on community here. And if you were trying to live your Christian life alone, single, just kind of singled out, and you're reading your Bible, and you're trying to do it on your own, you're missing a vital, vital resource. God wants somebody to ask you on a Sunday morning, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? He wants you to answer honestly, man, life's been really hard. This is what's going on in my life right now. He doesn't want you to just say, um, oh, it's great, everything's fine, okay? That's not true fellowship. God wants us to encourage one another. Now watch this. I love this. In worship, we grow towards the Lord. In ministry, we mature in the Lord. In fellowship, we encourage each other for the Lord. Towards the Lord, in the Lord, for the Lord, which means the purpose of church is not about you or me. Okay? It's all for the Lord, which is the implication. Here it is. Worship, minister, and fellowship together for the Lord, okay? For the Lord. Worship, minister, fellowship together for the Lord. That should change the way you think about church. It isn't about coming to get what you want. It's about saying, hey, this is for the Lord, and I'm coming together so I can worship, minister, and fellowship for the Lord. Maybe just a brief word to our online viewers. I hope you have a place where you're engaging in relationships this way. It's, it's easier here because you're going to see each other in a moment. You're going to have coffee. You're going to talk to one another. You're going to ask prayer requests. But just because you're online, you better be doing that too. Right? You should be saying, hey, listen, who am I texting today? Who am I praying for today? Who am I calling today? Finally, number seven. We believe the eternal destination of believers is with God in heaven. Right? We believe the eternal destination of all believers is with God in heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, uh, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay, here's the thing. If you're a medical doctor, if you're a funeral director, if you um, are in the medical field, if if you're in pharmacy, okay, in heaven, you are unemployed. Unemployed. If you sit here on a Sunday and say, man, Phil, I love coming, but I got to tell you, when I get up out of that pew, like, things hurt, my back hurts, my legs hurt, it all hurts, okay? I'm just going to tell you, the day's coming when that's not the case. This is heaven. And you want the implication? Here it is. Three words. This is the conclusion of the message, by the way. We can't wait. Okay. That's it. That's it. We can't wait. Now, 
I said it was the conclusion of the message, but it isn't quite, right? Because here's the point. I can remember as a child singing this song. Um, I'm going to heaven, can't wait. Going to see Jesus, can't wait. And I know I'll not be late because I'm going to heaven and I can't wait. Okay. And then I got to my teen years. And then I thought, man, I'd really like to just get my driver's license. And then I got my driver's license. And I thought, man, I'd really like to graduate from high school. And then I graduated from high school. I thought, wow, I'd like to go to college and meet somebody beautiful and marry them, which I did, okay? And then I thought, wow, what if we could have kids? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And before long, the little fill in my head quit singing, I'm going to heaven, can't wait. Going to see Jesus, can't wait. And I know I'll not be late because I'm going to heaven and I can't wait. In the world in which we live, we should be saying, I can't wait. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're seeing, these are the absolute truths drawn from the scriptures. Not a man's opinion, not a man's idea. We can't wait. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning, to just be reminded again of things that are fundamental truths to us. But in our busyness, in the world in which we live, we can so easily get distracted and forget them. Lord, I pray that this week we would just be reminded of these truths, we'd be encouraged by them, we'd think about them, we'd dwell upon them, we, we would love you well, and we would be in the word for ourselves. We'd look for opportunities around us to serve other people, to be Jesus to them, that we wouldn't be judgmental or argumentative, or rather we'd be just looking how we can be Jesus, full of grace and full of truth, and both. Help us do that, I would pray. Lord, help us understand the implications of what we say we believe, and then help us live them. In Jesus' name, We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.